at the Valley of Jezreel, where 120,000 men of the enemy, they were killed, and I'm quoting from last week's lesson by Dr. Reams, they were killed as the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. In other words, God threw them into utter confusion. Before we get into today's lessons, let's have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for the historic map that you've given us of your faithfulness to your people over the generations, over the centuries. Help us to see that remembering those events will have an extraordinary benefit to us as your children as we ask you to show forth your power to us in a culture that desperately needs a word from the King of Kings. We pray this in your name. Amen. So as I mentioned, today's passage is picking up the account that follows this devastating divine blow that was inflicted on Israel's enemies. And as we do that, we're going to say three things. First, there's this well-known spat between Gideon with the Ephraimites and also with the people in the cities of Succoth and Penuel. Secondly, there's the death of the remnants of the Midianite force, a total of 15,000. Those were those who had not died at Jezreel. And then there's the death of their two arrogant warrior kings, Zeba and Zalumna. And then the third thing is a tragic, we might say, late in life stumbling by Gideon who had made something that came to be regarded as an idol of all things. Got it? Three things with those in mind. Let's look together at this long passage. It's starting at chapter 7, beginning at verse 22, and then all the way down through chapter 8. Follow along as I read, but as I read, you may want to keep handy the map that you have before you. By the way, let me point out some distances. You have the Sea of Galilee at the very top. Everybody see that? And then, of course, the Jordan River flowing south. Jordan River Valley, by the way, is shown in light blue, but you can see the river itself. All of that flows south down to, ultimately, in the Dead Sea, a distance of 65 miles, maybe like going from here almost to Macon. And you'll notice Beth Bara. You'll see that down toward the bottom. That's three-fourths of the way to the Dead Sea. That would be just off our map. And get this, the Midianite people were from a region roughly 50 miles farther south of the Dead Sea. That's where the Midianite kingdom was located. Now, with all that background, listen as I read. This will be a long reading. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Beth Shittah toward Zeriah, as far as the border of Abdel Meholah by Tabith. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asha and from, the, and from all Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. You can see those three territories that is, Naphtali, Asher, and Manasseh on the map. And then verse 24, Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim, which you can see farther down on the map. And he said, Come down against the Midianites and capture the waters against them as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim 
were called out, and they captured the waters as far as Beth Barah, and also the Jordan. And they captured the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and Zeba they killed at the winepress of Zeb. And then they pursued Midian, and they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. And then now into chapter 8. Then the many of the men of Ephraim said to him, What is this that you've done to us, not to call us, when you went to fight against Midian? And they accused him fiercely. And he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abiezer? God was given, or rather, God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? And then their anger against him subsided when he said this. And Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over, he and the three hundred men who were with him, exhausted yet pursuing. So he said to the men of Succoth, you'll see that on the map, Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted. And I am pursuing after Zeba and Zalumna, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Zuccoth said, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalumna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, Well then, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalumna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. And then from there he went up to Penuel, and he spoke to them in the same way, and the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Zuccoth had answered. And he said to the men of Penuel, When I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. Now Zeba and Zalumna were in Karkor. You can see that on the map. And they were there with their army, about 15,000 men, all who were left of the army of the people of the east. For there had fallen 120,000 men who drew the sword. And Gideon went up by the way of the tent dwellers east of Nobah and Zogbeha and attacked the army, for the army felt secure. And Zeba and Zalumna fled, and he pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian, Zeba and Zalumna, and he threw all the army into a panic. Then Gideon the son of Joash returned from the battle by the ascent of Heres, and he captured a young man of Succoth and questioned him. And he wrote down for him the officials and elders of Succoth, Seventy-seven men. And he came to the men of Succoth and said, Behold, Zeba and Zalumna, about whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalumna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your men who are exhausted? And he took the elders of the city, and he took thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them taught the men of Succoth the lesson. And he broke down the tower of Penuel, and he killed the men of the city. <coughs> Then he said to Zeba and Zalumna, Where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? And they answered, As you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And he said, They were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I'd not kill you. So he said to Zethar, his firstborn, Rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid because he was still a young man. Then Zeba and Zalumna said, Rise yourself and fall upon us, for as the man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and killed Zeba and Zalumna, and he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. 
Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I'll not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, Let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, We will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw it in, the, threw in it the earnings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, about, 60, about 40 pounds. Besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels, and Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Ophrah. And all Israel whored after it, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest forty years in the days of Gideon. Zerubbabel, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had seventy sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father, at Ophrah of the Abizarites. Fascinating history, isn't it? From this long passage, we'll focus on the three things that I mentioned a bit earlier. First, the conflict between Gideon and the tribe of the Ephraimites and the conflict with the cities of Succoth and Penuel. Secondly, we'll talk about the death of the remnants of the Midianite force and their two kings, Zeba and Salumna. And then finally, we'll touch on Gideon's ephod and the trouble that it brought. So with that in mind, let's focus first on the trouble between Gideon and the Ephraimites. And we started that in chapter 7, verse 24, and that continues through chapter 8, verse 2. And when you think about it, it doesn't make a lot of sense. When the 15,000 Midianites fled the valley of Jezreel and they tried to escape to the southeast, remember, everything is going down southeast. When those 15,000 men tried to escape toward their homeland across the Jordan, what happened was Gideon sent out a 911 call to every able-bodied warrior from Naphtali, Asher, and Manasseh, men who could join the fight. You see their territories noted on the map. And according to verse 23, warriors from those tribes started the pursuit of the enemy as they all fled down toward the south. But then after that, Gideon sent a similar alert to Ephraim. That's in verse 24. Since the fleeing enemy was approaching their territory, and you can see that on the map, we know the Ephraimites responded quickly and they were able to block some of the Midianite escape routes across the Jordan. There were only certain places where you could escape. They knew that. And Gideon, of course, with the assistance of these tribes, was trying to block that access south. Now, although other portions of the Midianite army did escape past Succoth and Penuel to the city of Karkor, the Ephraimite forces were able to successfully capture and later execute two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. But then, oddly, for no real good reason, we see in chapter 8 that 
the men of Ephraim got their feathers ruffled with Gideon because with Gideon because he had not called them first to join the battle against the Midianites. And when you think about that, it probably was something like this. They wanted to share in the good press that came from the slaughter of the I mean, you can see Facebook. Midianites slaughtered by 300 men. And what they wanted was some of the glory. Gideon was the hero, and they wanted to share in some of the fame and glory. And there's another factor that probably enters into the equation. There's a very good chance they also wanted some of the spoils of the loot the spoils of war that always came to the victors in a battle. Spoils of war. And because of that, they felt cheated. We see it right at the end when he asked for the spoils to give, to give him from the spoils the golden earrings and other things. They may have felt cheated and wanted to participate in that. Whatever it is, the problem with their theory was that had they been asked by Gideon to send troops, and let's say they sent 3,000 men, what likely would have happened when those 3,000 men showed up to join the forces of the other 32,000 that Dr. Reams talked about last week? What would have happened with some of those 3,000 men? They'd been sent right back home. And why was that? Because God very likely would have sent the substantial number of them back. For this reason, God was very clear with Gideon, any more than 300 men, get this, way too many men to defeat an army that was 450 times larger than his. How <laughs> you have too many men to slaughter 120,000 men? So here's an interesting question as we take a narrative like this and try to do whatever we do when we, what we always do when we read Old Testament narratives any narrative, Old or New Testament, you take that text and you just mm, squeeze it and say, all right, Lord, what is the principle that you're teaching me from this passage? What do we get from that part of this text? And it's this, who gets the glory when we look back at things that have occurred in our past and we see that nothing I had at my disposal could have brought about this result? Who gets the glory for Christian people like ourselves? when we have that reality in our own lives? And the answer, of course, is God gets the glory, and it's His intention for us to develop that, that mindset in our own lives. Let me ask you, have you had those moments in your life when something happened, and you look in sort of the rear-view mirror of your life, and you think, wow. You kind of do this. Wow. Have you had that? and you attribute it to the power of God. Well, that's just a statement from the Lord. It's like He sends this email to us. Or have y'all heard of this thing, I don't do it, it's called texting, where you can take these electronic devices and communicate almost instantaneously. The Lord, are, the Lord is giving us these signs that we can treasure and remember, especially when we find ourselves in a place where we really need His presence and power. Let me say this. A sanctified memory is a sanctifying event for every one of us. We get it, really, when we read Scripture and we see how God did this, and we can remember God is faithful. The difficulty for all of us is sometimes, well, that's just those guys. That's not my own life. 
what the Lord wants us to do from these narrative passages is to take the weight of them and embrace them and then link those up to the times in our own lives when we spend them. Any thoughts about that, anybody? Well, as it concerns what's going on with the Ephraimites, Gideon didn't have time to give them a lesson in godly character and manners. <laughs> Too bad. Who was that Amy Vanderbilt that wrote that book about good manners? They skipped that day in school, apparently. What he had to do was to placate these brothers and get back to business. So we see what he said in verses 2 and 3. What have I done in comparison with you? He's disarming these guys. Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abiezer, where he was from, by the way? God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Orb, and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison to you? Then their anger against him subsided. Now, Ebiezer was, as I mentioned, Gideon's hometown, and any harvest that might come from there, he said, couldn't compare at all to the harvest the Ephraimites could produce, such as the harvest or death of Oreb and Zeb. And that was sufficient groveling by Gideon to satisfy their souls. But get this, and if you take notes, this is something to jot down. What the Ephraimites should have wanted to know was this. How in the world could 300 men defeat a force of 135,000? So here's the question. Did they ever stop for five seconds and wonder what God had done and stand at all and wonder at what God had done through them? It's like, it's incredible. What they should have said to him was, what was it like? I know it was dark, but what was it like? How many times in our own lives have we looked past the obvious to get to the detail when the Lord is just trying to build in our hearts a sanctifying work by looking at what he's done? Well, the same thing can be said about the doubting people of Succoth and Penuel. Gideon asked for food for his 300 men. They were legitimately exhausted and hungry, having already marched more than 20 miles to get to that point. But did you notice that the men in the city were afraid to give them anything? Now, why was that? The answer is they were afraid of retaliation by the Midianite kings, Zeba and Zalumna whose territories were not so far away farther south. And those two kings had been harassing them for years. Those two cities were sort of like this, under the thumbs of those Midianite kings. And so verse 6 makes it very clear. The official said, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalumna already in your hands that we should give bread to your army? What that basically means is this. If they're not dead, we ain't helping. And the people in Penuel said the same thing because they had the same fears. Retaliation by the Midianites. First, I will note this, that's a rather legitimate thing for them to be thinking because Zeba and Zalumna lived close by. These two cities were, of all those we've seen today, the closest to their base to the Midianite base of operations. So 
it's kind of a legitimate thing for them to be saying, until we see the hands of these dead kings, we can't help. We'd like to. I promise you we'd like to help, but we can't because we're afraid that we ourselves might be killed. Another reason, and we see it in chapter 6, verse 1, is that God had already, John touched on this last week, God had already given all of Israel, including Succoth and Penuel, into the hands of the powerful Midianites for how many years? Do you all remember? Seven years they had been oppressed by the Midianites, and they were just simply afraid. But here's an interesting thing they should have considered. As they're sitting there talking to Gideon, how in the world can 300 men defeat 120,000? You agree with that? The question was, what were they thinking or what were they not thinking? Let me ask you this. Who were the Midianite kings who were leading the Midianites in the Jezreel Valley when 120,000 of them died? Zeba and Zalumna, the same men who at that very moment were paralyzing those men with fear, who had fled, get this, Zalumna and Zeba fled. Well, let me ask you, do you think they fled with their 15,000 people because they were afraid of the 300 men with their pots and torches? Or did they, did they flee for another reason? And here's the reason. They fled because they had witnessed the power of Almighty God that had broken loose on people who hated Him. Let me ask you this. Which king had more power? And who knew that? Those men who fled. Here's the promise in which we can take comfort. Second Chronicles 16, 9. The eyes of the Lord roam to and fro through the entire earth, seeking to show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are totally devoted to him. Well, based on what we read in verses 13 to 18 about the punishment inflicted on those two cities by Gideon, it's pretty clear that the men of Succoth and Penuel wish that they could have had a do-over for doing the wrong thing when he first asked, which tells us this, all of us as godly people, letting fear cause us to doubt God's faithfulness can be dangerous. Now, I will say this. All of us reasonably have fears about things from time to time. In my profession, with deadlines and disappointments, there are occasions when I'm fearful. Anybody ever have that? I don't know what it takes for people like us to come to the place where we can have this settled conviction that God's power is enough. So that if the issue is not resolved the way we want it to be resolved, it doesn't mean that he's not listening. It just means he's doing something in the midst of that thing that's causing us our fear. The only way to tackle that is to have a brother or sister in Christ who can walk us through, we might say, with the Wilson family, the valley of the shadow of death. 
or any one of a million things that all of us have faced from time to time. We need each other because you can encourage me, call me, buy my lunch, <laughs> cut my grass. Don't we? We need each other so that we can focus on... The, it doesn't change the theological, sacred reality that God is working. It just helps us manage life. Amen. Comments, anybody? All right. Let's shift now to the second point regarding the death of the remnants of the Midianite force and their two kings, Zeba and Zalumna. Again, the map is helpful. The Midianite army, all 15,000 of them, had made their escape southward and were in the city of Karkor, where, look at verse 11, if you don't mind. They are there, and what does it say they felt? Anybody? Verse 11. They felt secure. <laughs> they were approaching home. It's like this. We've just got like 45 more miles to go, and we'll be home, and all this foolishness of trying to fight up there that was crazy. So, seeing no evidence that they were being followed by Gideon or his forces, they thought life was going to be safe. But then, if you will, notice on the map the orange arrow that shows Gideon's flanking maneuver that's mentioned again in verses 11, and I'm quoting, by the way of the tent dwellers east of Nobah and Zogbihah. One source said that that was a caravan route, little used, but a caravan route. And there, as we see, Gideon and his forces closed in on the Midianites, sent them into, verse 12, a panic, and destroyed them. Now, it's not clear how many Gideon had in his army at that particular point. He had 300 when he crossed the Jordan, we read about. At that point, then earlier, but it appears that it was more of a conventional battle than earlier in the Valley of Zezreel. At this point, it looks like a regular military engagement. Either way, they're in a panic. Gideon and his forces prevailed. And by that point, once again, God did precisely what He said He'd do for His children before and has been saying through all of sacred history He silenced His enemies. We just talked about our remembering the evidence of God's hand having moved in the past. It's interesting. I saw a resource that pointed us to Psalm 83 verses 9 through 11, where the psalmist cried out to God, and I'm quoting now, not to be quiet, as Israel's enemies were beginning to stir and raise their hands to destroy them as a nation, but instead the psalmist is crying out to the Lord that he would come to their defense. And in that section, verses 9 through 11, he called to the Lord, and I'm quoting again, to, to, to do to them as you did to Midian, and to Oreb and Zeb and Zeba and Alumna. Now that's fascinating. The psalmist is doing precisely what we're talking about doing. Remember God's faithfulness in the past. Remember when the spies went into the Jordan, went across the Jordan. Uh, Joshua sent two men in. They ended up at the home of Rahab the harlot. Now she's obviously not a believer 
But does anybody remember what Rahab said about the reputation of those thousands, actually millions of people camped over across the Jordan? We remember what happened at the Red Sea. In other words, even a non-believer is remembering God's exercise of power, just as the psalmist did here. The interesting point about all of that is this. As we do remembering in our own lives and then speak of that, it is an evangelistic tool for those around us. It was for Rahab, not because anybody specifically from the Jewish nation had talked to her about that, but even indirectly, our remembering and having confidence in God's faithful, preserving power, it's a testimony to everybody around us. I will say this, this form of remembering is all over the Bible, occupying passage after passage. And the lesson for us is it should certainly occupy our own memories, knowing this, what he did for Israel, he's done for us, and let's just keep it in the first of our minds so that next week, it's always on Monday, have you noticed? Next week, when this thing happens, I will remember, and I will be encouraged to remember by the people in my network. Gideon, interestingly, Gideon, the once skeptical farmer, where was he threshing wheat? Now remember that? In a wine press because of fear of the Midianites. And who doubted? This Gideon who doubted that he would ever be useful as a warrior. I'm from the least of all the tribes. How can I be helpful? What did Gideon do? He turned his sword on the most powerful people of that day vindicating the death of his own brothers, we see that in this passage, and earning the praise of his people and defeating the leaders of the army that opposed them. And what did they want of Gideon? They wanted him to run for president. <laughs> they wanted him to be king. And he said, no, of course, he was too worried about global warming to take time off of what he... <laughs> He said, no, verse 23, I'm not going to do that. And then he said very wisely, Yahweh, the covenant name, L-O-R-D, will rule over you. He will be your king. Was that an insight into Gideon's heart? Yeah, you've got to go back. When we go back two full chapters and realize the progression of what has happened in this man's life, fearfully trying to thresh wheat in a wine press because he knew there would be nothing for his family if the Midianites came to get what he was preparing for his own family, and he was right about that. Fearful Gideon was called by an angel to be a warrior on behalf of the king of kings, doubted it. Ultimately, the Lord patiently dealing with him was unusual because of the incidents with the fleeces. But here's... Gideon, who is radically transformed. And through all of that process, when he was called on to be king, he said, no, God will be your king. Is that a smart move? You bet. In other words, God had guided him through the Midianite ordeal. And I don't know if you noticed this, but even told Gideon to erect an altar in Ophrah where he lived. 
Now, the Ephraimites might not have understood what happened in the Valley of Jezreel when 300 men were involved only in the destruction of 125,000 mercenary warriors. Let me say that again. The Ephraimites didn't get it. The people in Succoth and Penuel didn't get it, but who did? Gideon got it. And that's the point of all of that. He recognized it. He wanted to let God do what he had shown that he would do, and that is to rule his people. Now, point number three as we wrap up. Ultimately, as time passed, Gideon seems to have had a slight brain freeze. Glad it never happens anymore in our day. He had a brain freeze. He had forgotten this crucially important point to understand the rest of where we're going with the balance of this this lesson. Gideon seems to have forgotten that God requires that he be worshipped only as he prescribed that he would be worshipped. In other words, Gideon is suffering a late-in-life spiritual stumbling. There are all kinds of men's help books to help Christian men be resolved to finish well. Well, he didn't, unfortunately. At that point, get a load of this from a mapping perspective. At that point in Jewish history, the tabernacle was in Shiloh, which was south of Orpah. You can see Orpah on the map just north of the place where the Valley of Jezreel battle took place. But Ephraim, as you see on the map, is farther south, and Shiloh was an Ephraim. And at that point, the high priests and the tabernacle were ministering there before the Lord. So let's ask this question as we think about Gideon's ephod. Was an ephod part of the garments that God prescribed for the high priest? Yes, it was a key part of the priestly garments. It was mid-thigh or knee in length. The the priest would put it over his shoulders and it came down here front and back. It was woven through with gold and silver and, and things like that. And over that, they would put the breastplate. It was a key part of the priestly garments. That's Ezekiel, or rather Exodus 28, verses 6 through 14. So perhaps, at least initially, with good intentions, Gideon had an ephod made with some of the spoils of the victory. And it actually seems like, as we read this text carefully, it seems like he intended it for it to be used in sacred worship. And maybe even before the altar that Gideon had previously made at the direction of the Lord, chapter 6, verse 26. Good idea or bad idea? Terrible idea. When you think about it, it actually kind of sounds like Aaron making the golden calf. Or remember Jeroboam who took the northern kingdom when they split between Rehoboam and himself after Solomon had died? He made two golden calves to be located in two places in the northern kingdom in Samaria so that the people could go worship there or there. They had a choice. Any problem with that? Yes. Because God not only said what the vestments would look like and who would wear them, but He said where you will worship. Now, let's remember this. 
This was the hero that God used to crush the Midianites that had oppressed them for years. But here's the point of all of that. Somebody has said correctly so that hell is paved with good intentions. And what Gideon did was a snare, not only to himself and his family. Did you see that in verse 29? It ruined his own family, but perhaps worse, all Israel whored after it there. Meaning, when it says there, it's talking about they were worshiping not in Shiloh, but in Ophrah. Now, the problem with that probably is Gideon had not gotten over what gotten over what Ephraim had done to them with respect to the criticism of his not bringing them into the battle. So what he said is, uh-uh, we're not going to worship in Shiloh where the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant were until it was captured in 1 Samuel chapter 4. What we're going to do instead is we're going to worship here where the real men were. What's the warning for God's people? Simple. Worship when God says and worship where God says, which is Lord's house on the Lord's day. Period. No exceptions. Number two, anything else is too dangerous for even the best and the brightest of all of us. We cannot fail. We should not fail to worship the Lord in the Lord's house on the Lord's day as He prescribed. And then thirdly, recognize that powerful people can be powerfully deceived. Questions, anybody? Alrighty, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the vivid way that you've painted historic pictures. This is history, what we're reading. And the reality is even though our culture doesn't like to recognize the fact that you are still engaged in history on a day-by-day basis, you are. And you were then, and you are today. And the same principles that we extract from this biblical narrative apply today just like they did all those thousands of years ago. Father, we thank you for calling out individuals to assume responsibilities as was said of Esther, for such a time as this. Father in heaven, perhaps you would use us today, even as we elect officers in our church today. It's, it's an important point in the history of this church as you were calling out certain people for such a time as this. I pray, O oh Lord, as we, as men and women engaged in the work of the kingdom, would be prepared to be used by you even though we may be, like Gideon, fearful in the beginning, help us to use the gifts and resources that you've given us that we might be those whom you use with our particular unique gift set for such a time as this. And then, our Lord, even as we think about that reality, we pray that we would be watchful and careful with the temptations that come to us in day-to-day life. Gideon was, in the beginning, refusing to be a king, and yet, in some manner, failing to consider the whole counsel of God. So help us to be men and women who are sensitive to the 
convicting power of the Holy Spirit and the clarity of the Word to be those who worship you. Worship is a verb. It's something that we do in the Lord's house on the Lord's day. Thankful for what you've done in us, but aware that we need the guidance and counsel that comes from the Word being prayed and sung and preached and seen in the elements, Lord's day by Lord's day. And we pray this in your name. Amen.